Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. In the coming decades, the survival of humanity will depend on our ecological literacy, our ability to understand the basic principles of ecology and live accordingly. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be just one of many issues in this new century. It will move to center stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we salute the Bioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature, honoring both traditional native wisdom and modern scientific knowledge, restoring the earth by changing the world. When scientists set out to find the smallest, most basic forms of matter, they discovered particles that just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Finally, they came to the point where there were no things. Matter became energy, and energy became matter. There were only relationships. Biologists tell us that ecology is the superb art of relationships. Everything depends on everything else in an intricate tapestry of interdependence. If we take this recognition to heart, how could it affect the way we live, not only in our relationship with the natural world, but with each other? And what might love have to do with it? Join us for the next half hour as we look at the art of relationships from ecology to healing with physicist and author Fritjof Capra and medical scientist and author Gene Achterberg. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Fritjof Capra is a credentialed physicist who did his time working with particle accelerators in Europe and the United States. But his best-selling 1975 book, The Tao of Physics, portrayed a new science that moved away from a mechanistic view of the world as a giant machine to one that lived and breathed with the constant dynamic change that's inherent in living systems. What came to fascinate him was how these living systems function in ways that permit them to sustain themselves over very long periods of time, and how as human beings we might adapt some of these time-tested lessons to building sustainable societies based on sustaining the greater web of life. He says that this kind of systems thinking forces us to think in terms of relationships, patterns, and context. Add to the mix a pinch of complexity theory, the idea that the beating of a butterfly's wings in the Amazonian jungle might result in a hurricane in Europe, and you get a sense of just how complicated and interlinked all of life really is. Fritjof Capra spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. One of the most important insights of the systemic understanding of life is the recognition that networks are the basic pattern of organization of all living systems. You know that ecosystems are understood in terms of food webs, that is, networks of organisms. Organisms are networks of cells. Cells are networks of molecules. So the network is a pattern that is common to all life. Wherever we see life, we see networks. 
Closer examination of these living networks has shown that their key characteristic is that they are self-generating. In a cell, for example, all the biological structures are generated by a network of chemical reactions. You have a cell membrane, the food comes in, the simple molecules come in from the outside, but all the proteins, the enzymes, the DNA, all of that is continually built and rebuilt by this cellular network of chemical processes. So living networks continually create or recreate themselves by transforming or replacing their components. We can also observe networks in the social realm, and you all know that networking has become the key metaphor of our time. Now, in the social realm, these networks are not networks of chemical processes, but networks of communications. So the processes are processes of communication. Living networks in human communities are networks of communications. And like biological networks, they are self-generating. But what they generate is mostly non-material. Each conversation or communication gives rise to thoughts, information, ideas, which then trigger further communications. And in this way, the whole network generates itself. As the new century unfolds, Capra says that we can see two developments that will have a major impact on our ways of life and well-being into the long-term future. Both have to do with networks, and both involve radically new technologies. One is the rise of corporate economic globalization. The other is the creation of sustainable communities based on the principles of ecological design. He observes that economic globalization is focused on electronic networks of financial and informational flows. On the other hand, ecological design is concerned with the biological networks of nature, flows of energy and matter. Their goals are also different. Globalization seeks to maximize the wealth and power of its elite. Ecological design seeks to optimize the sustainability of the web of life. Given that economic globalization to date has been disastrous for the web of life and has mainly served to increase social and financial inequality, the question is, how do we change the game? After all, people created it, so we can change it. According to Fritjof Capra, it all comes back to relationships and networks. In parallel with the wired world of corporate globalization, there has arisen a new superpower, loosely termed the Global Justice Movement, or Civil Society, whose networks have successfully used the World Wide Web to connect themselves in the kinds of decentralized intelligence found in nature. At their core, Capra says, is ecological design. Their quest? Long-term survival, ecological sustainability. A sustainable community is usually defined as one that is able to satisfy its needs without diminishing the chances of future generations. That's the traditional definition that was introduced by Lester Brown in the early 80s. It is an important moral exhortation. It reminds us of our responsibility to pass on to our children and grandchildren a world with as many opportunities as the ones we inherited. However, 
this definition does not tell us anything about how to build a sustainable community. What we need, therefore, in my view, is an operational definition of sustainability. And such an operational definition starts from the recognition that we do not need to invent sustainable communities from scratch, but we can model them after the sustainable communities of nature. Ecosystems are communities of plants, animals, and microorganisms that have evolved over billions of years so as to maximize their long-term survival and sustainability. So a sustainable human community must be designed in such a manner that its ways of life, businesses, economy, physical structures, and social institutions do not interfere with nature's inherent ability to sustain life. This is, in my view, the key. And we need to realize that this does not mean maintaining the status quo. Nature's ability to sustain life is not a static state, but is a dynamic process, a continuing process of change, evolution, adaptation, creativity. Now, this definition implies that the first step in our endeavor to build sustainable communities must be to become, as it were, ecologically literate. That is, to understand the principles of organization that ecosystems have evolved to sustain the web of life. In the coming decades, the survival of humanity will depend on our ecological literacy, our ability to understand the basic principles of ecology and live accordingly. This means that ecoliteracy must become a critical skill for politicians, business leaders, and professionals in all spheres and should be the most important part of education at all levels, from primary and secondary schools to colleges, universities, and the continuing education and training of professionals. In 1995, Fritjof Capra teamed up with a group in Berkeley, California, to create the Center for Eco-Literacy, which has grounded these concepts in the seedbed of education. The program patiently wove a web of relationships from the local school to the school district, from the classroom teacher to the school board. Collaborating with chef and food activist Alice Waters from the world-famous Chez Panisse restaurant, they started the Edible Schoolyard Project at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School. It immerses children in hands-on gardening, planting a passion for nature and a sense of connection to the land and one another. They linked the garden to the school kitchen with a food-based curriculum. They helped start other school gardens and brought the program to the school district with a conference with a vision of a garden in every school. And they engaged parents and officials and integrated people's concerns and complaints at every point. They then assembled 17 organizations, which led to establishing gardens in every single district school. Finally, they helped bring about a district food policy that even integrates organic and vegetarian foods to the maximum extent possible and supports local farmers. Kids go on tours to farms and farmers' markets. Then, by an unheard of 83% vote, the city of Berkeley passed a $116 million bond for school kitchen and cafeteria facilities. Berkeley now cooperates with a regional coalition of 13 districts to purchase locally grown food. 
the Center for Eco-Literacy launched all this by cultivating relationships and networks. Again, Fritjof Capra. In our programs, children from kindergarten to high school learn the fundamental facts of life. For example, that one species' waste is another species' food. That matter cycles continually through the web of life. That the energy driving these ecological cycles flows from the sun. That diversity assures resilience. And that life from its beginning, more than three billion years ago, did not take over the planet by combat, but by networking. So eco-literacy is the first step on the road to sustainability. Fritjof Capra from the Center for Eco-Literacy. When we return more on the art of relationships from ecology to healing with Gene Achterberg on Healing Human Communities. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. If relationships and networks are the essence of ecology, and eco-literacy and understanding of the interconnected, interdependent nature of life as we know it is key to a sustainable future, what to do? Fritjof Capra and his colleagues at the Center for Eco-Literacy are teaching and connecting these ideas to community after community. Are there other ways we can apply these same principles to human-social relations? Jean Achterberg believes we can. She has spent over 30 years awakening the healthcare field to the power of a medicine that embraces the whole person as mind, body, and spirit, and that sees human relationships themselves as a healing force. Her early work using creative visualization with cancer patients showed documented results of clear benefits to patients' quality of life and reductions in the length of their hospital stays. Once considered fringe, today this approach is used at hospitals all over the world. The author of numerous books, including Shamanism and Medicine and Woman as Healer, Jean Achterberg was named by Time magazine as one of the six leading innovators of our time in alternative medicine. Like the natural world, she finds medicine itself in a crisis stemming from our disconnection from relationships. She spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. We are in crisis. We are in an economic crisis, but it goes far beyond the exigencies of not being able to pay for medical care. We are in an environmental crisis, but it goes beyond the abuse and the neglect of an environment. Fundamentally, these are the epiphenomenon of a greater, graver crisis, and that is a failure to respect men women and children, a failure to honor humanity, to honor life, 
and a failure to ask with each thought, is this life-giving, is this life-sustaining, or is this destructive? Now, what is the evidence that we have that any of this, this business of honoring human values, makes any difference in the health of a planet, the health of a community? I think when truth comes before us, it comes in many guises, it comes as poetry, it comes as art, it comes as music, and it comes as science. From the wisdom traditions, the information on human relationship, from the physicists, the Kabbalah, from the Sufis, from electromagnetic field research now, and certainly from artists, poets, and mystics of all time. They give us this imagery of the connection, the human connection. And imagine, imagine this image, if you can, a universe where we are connected by ineffable, invisible matrix. It's a trellis upon which humanity weaves itself into an immense and dynamic tapestry. Each life, each soul, the essence of each being is a point of light in the cloth. Like the web of a tireless spider, the warps and woofs gracefully dance and shape and reshape into multidimensional space. Folds upon itself and opens like a night-blooming flower in the path of the full moon. Think of this cloth as the consciousness of humankind, grafting itself upon the source of its own divine origin. Countless filaments connecting. Sometimes this matrix feels like love. And in these traditions, it is said that when two lights, two souls, the essence of two human beings, bond, energy is released, great quantities of light and sound are released, and the nature of both is changed forever. We merge together and together and together with the source from which we came. From these thoughts, this information, we can surmise that when we profoundly connect with another human being, we may not only polish our souls and theirs, we may even release light and energy according to these teachings. And what do we know from poetry, from listening, from paying attention? We know that perhaps medicine is simply a life raft and we as human beings hold on to one another in a great sea. James Baldwin, the poet, said the moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we lose faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. Well, what's going on here? What is going on at a level that's concrete and scientific? Well, the best that we can say the most reductionistic thing that we can say is that relationships are stress buffers. Study after study showing that people in relationship have increased immune function, decreased wound healing time, lower sympathetic nervous system activity. We know that you can't hardly kill a married man, even if he's not really wild about his wife. It's true. And that we know that women who have girlfriends live forever. Data.
So science marches on. An interesting thing about science, it always backfills what we always knew to begin with, doesn't it? That's why I adore it. Relationships themselves, according to the research, are a panacea. Decreased incidence of death from all major causes. Imagine the stock in a pharmaceutical firm that could make this claim. Outrageous. Heart disease, cancer, accidents, on and on and on. Being together on this life raft, in this sea, is a panacea. So what else can we say? What else can we say about relationships that um, we don't already know? Relationships are medicine. I'm a closet medical historian, and one of the things that I always ask of medicine is, what really is going on here? Because things change. Everything cures somebody, and nothing cures everybody. That is a fact. Well... Maybe the relationship, when you pluck apart and pry apart all of the pills and the potions and the manipulations of the physical body, maybe it is just these invisible bonds that help or heal. Studies upon studies now document the healing potency of these invisible or transpersonal bonds. Dr. Larry Dossey, for one, has reported on rigorous double-blind studies that confirm the startling power of prayer, for example. Reawakening to a basic law of nature that all things are connected is broadening the field of medicine to an ecological medicine. This at once ancient and new medicine is expanding out to the transpersonal and back in to the personal, skin-to-skin personal. The third level of healing touch is touch, excuse me. And touch is the flesh-to-flesh connection. It's massage. It's the power of holding It's healing, it's therapeutic touch, and there is an abundance of research now showing that touch simply heals. It's very interesting. I've listened to a lot of very old and very sick people who tell me that they really still need to be touched, and they may even want to still make love. And perhaps it is in these times when we are in the greatest crisis, physical, mental, and spiritual, that we need to begin to touch one another more. Any of us who have ever nursed a baby know that when we touch a baby and the baby touches us, there's something being transmitted far more than milk. Now, this is the one that's the juiciest for many of us right now because there is so much research, and the research goes back 30 and 40 years, prospective studies, thousands and thousands of people, showing that the community web of family, friends, work, support group, and other things is truly healing. Now, the healing bond that is perhaps most intriguing is the bond of love, and we need to ask what love has to do with it. Is love, in fact, caring? Is it health-promoting? Is it life-saving? People who are survivors of the most dire and difficult circumstances say, yes, indeed, it is. Viktor Frankl, for example, said that occasionally, when he was in um, one of the many concentration camps that he was in, Occasionally I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a bank of dark clouds, but my mind clung to my wife's image. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Had I known then that my wife was dead, I think I would still have given myself. Undisturbed by the knowledge to the contemplation of her image and that my mental conversation with her would have been just as vivid and just as satisfying, set me like a seal upon the heart 
Love is as strong as death. So what do people in crisis want? What do people in health crisis want? What is it that we can do as health care providers, as intelligent consumers? Epidemiological research from all over the world shows that people basically go into the healthcare system, spiritual health, mental health, physical health, to get relief from suffering. They go into their healthcare systems to get information. But every single piece of evidence points to the fact that when they are also given sympathy, compassion, understanding, all of the medicines that are prescribed tend to work better. Is this so difficult for us to understand? Must we keep going back and back to the bases of who we are as human beings and what it's like to continue to live life on this planet? I don't know. I would like to um, share with you some remarks from someone much wiser than me about the nature of compassion, the nature of human relationships, the nature of love. It's Teilhard de Chardin, the great mystic, scientist, Jesuit priest. He says that love is the free and imaginative outpouring of the spirit over all unexplored paths. It links those who love in bonds that unite but do not confound, causing them to discover in their mutual contact an exaltation capable of arousing in the heart of their being all that they possess of uniqueness and power. And he says that someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we shall harness for good, for God, the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. Jean Achterberg, the author of Woman as Healer. So here the physicist and the healer come together with the mystics. There's a great weaving unfolding, both say in their own ways. It's all alive, say the pioneers. It's all intelligent. It's all connected. It's all relatives. And it appears that love does have something to do with it. The Art of Relationships, From Ecology to Healing to find out more about the work and writings of Fritjof Capra, Jean Achterberg, and all the participants in this series, and to find out more about the annual Bioneers Conference, call Bioneers toll-free at 1-877-246-6337. That's 1-877-BIONEER. Or visit the Bioneers website at Bioneers.org. To become a member of the Bioneers or to buy a cassette tape, CD, or transcript of this program, please call toll-free 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. To read more about the work of the Bioneers, check out the Bioneers Anthology book series, including Ecological Medicine, Healing the Earth, Healing Ourselves, and Nature's Operating Instructions, The True Biotechnologies, published by Sierra Club Books. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel, written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Managing Producer, Diane Solomon. Associate Producer, Stephanie Welch. Distribution and Promotion, WFMT Radio Network. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko disc label. Additional music was made available by Karuna Music Triloka Records at www.triloka.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. 
The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in restoring the environment by changing the world. This is program number 0604.